0: Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you At a time when you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or they will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.
1: So, uh, I, want to, I want to look at Psalm 32, as you've heard read already by Pastor Dial, and to, to really understand, of course, it has to be said in a historical sense, and the history behind this is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and these are some of the most infamous, calamitous, and disappointing pieces of scripture that you can find, the scenes here. Are terrible, because rather than being at war where he was supposed to be with his men, King David was on his rooftop in the evening. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he saw Bathsheba, a married woman, and his passions engaged, and he committed adultery with her. A child was conceived out of that relationship, and David had her husband, an honorable man, an honorable soldier named Uriah, executed in battle. Very quickly, David, who was thought to be a hero of the faith, was a disobedient adulterer and a murderer. And thus, chapter 11 begins a cycle in, in 2 Samuel, a cycle of failure and disaster. It's just a, nat- a natural, sinful Downward spiral. And it happened in his house, and it happened on his job, and it happened in his rule of the nation. And Nathan, a prophet, had to come to him and announce a judgment, not the least of which was the death of the child that had been conceived. And David lost large portions of his family. He was deposed from his throne. All that he had done had become widely known and was indelibly blotted on the person of the king. And this person is who 1 Kings 11 said was wholly devoted to God. David was a man after God's own heart, but this is certainly one of the lowest of the low points of his life. He's had other failures, he will go on to have other failures to be sure, but it's probably here that David's seen it as worse. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, where God says, uh, the prophet comes in and, and explains that God has given so much to David. And if he had asked for more, God would have given him more. But instead, David tried taking it for himself. And so David's sin sat firmly in the context of God's generosity towards him. And 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are the historical accounts of what went on there, they tell the story in a very factual, in a very clinical way. However, after that, David wrote at least two Psalms reflecting on the events and how he was thinking through them. Psalm 51 was David's cry for restoration from God. And the second one is the one that we'll look at this morning, Psalm 32, which you've already heard. And we're going to consider a portion of it at least. Psalm 32 breaks into two portions pretty easily, right in half almost. Verses 1 through 5 are how David remembers the forgiveness that was given to him and from his great sinful experience. And, and then in, le- in 6 through 11, he gives helpful instruction coming out of that based on that experience. And this, this morning, I would like to consider the first of five verses of this psalm. And if God allows us, we'll look at the second half next time. I don't think this is normally the best way to consider a psalm. It's, it's supposed to be organically a whole thing. But uh, the first half of this psalm contains such a perspective of light that I think is strange for us, that I think it's good to be able to dwell on this just for a while and focus on this and do the same next week with the second half. Now, you have heard the, the whole of Psalm 32 read. But I want to just start us with the first couple of verses. Again, I'm reading out of a different version that you might have. But it says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I think if you don't get the first couple sentences here of verses 1 and 2, then you don't get the rest of the psalm, to be honest. And when I say get it, I don't mean just kind of mentally understand it. I mean, get it, right? For many of us, David's statements make sense intellectually, but are different than our personal experiences. And that's a problem. David is very happy in this psalm and he's relieved to be through this period of life. And Psalm 32 represents this. We tend to see the word blessed here and think that this is an objective truth. David sinned. God forgave him. Therefore, he's been blessed by God. That makes sense. He got God's grace. That's undoubtedly what happened. It's a biblical pr- pattern that happens. So blessed indicates that the grace and mercy of God was given to a person. And that, that happens a lot that God is factually merciful to us. And so David is saying that he is a person who has transgressions forgiven, his sins covered and his iniquity is not imputed to him. He's a blessed person. And that undoubtedly happens. However, blessed also means happy. It means what just happened, the forgiveness that covered the sin and iniquity, the 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 imputation not made has been has been really well received it feels good it 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 you see here there's there's exclamation points in the sentences i think in your version i know in mine there're exclamation points those exclamation points are not in the hebrew text but i think they're totally appropriate and i not i've never had a sermon on punctuation marks but perhaps somebody could do one from this psalm i'm not the guy to do that but the punctuation points the exclamation points are exactly right david knows something to be true And that knowledge didn't stop in his head, but it got down into him. In his bones, it moved to a part where he feels his affections are stored. And that fact made him happy. It made him glad. And so the truth he knows creates feelings, happiness. And and that's why he calls himself blessed. Now, I I realize you might not like the way I'm using happy here as a synonym for blessed. Because uh, happy gets maligned in some sermons. Um, Christians tend to prefer the word joy, right? Because uh, the thought, the logic is that happiness depends on happenings. And therefore, as the happenings change, your happiness can change where joy just stays with you no matter what happens out there. And and I'm I'm pro joy. I got no problem with joy. Uh, don't want to be anti joy for sure. But but uh, so there are there are there are pastors and a lot of sermons that prefer to use the word joy rather than happiness. It's a fine word. Don't get me wrong. But the the word joy also implies sort of a calm satisfaction, a deep satisfaction that does not change at times, and that's fine. But here David is expressing a little giddiness, a little bubbliness, right? He's, he's Happy just seems to describe it a little bit better in this verse, right? And therefore, I, I'm going to propose a truce that says that the truth of God and forgiveness gives both a deep, calm satisfaction, not depending on the circumstances, and yet sometimes it just makes me happy. It, it, just, it just brings a pop to my step, a clap to my hands, and volume in my voice that I, Jesus made me happy. I just enjoy what he did. And, and can I say that when I consider my transgressions being forgiven, my sins being covered, my iniquities being unimputed, and my spirit being truthful, it brings a deep pleasure that makes me smile a little bit more, makes me sing a little bit louder. Is it possible that both can happen because sometimes Jesus just makes you happy. Well, maybe if you remember the context of what David is saying, it would be clearer. See, David spent about a year in which his biggest thoughts that occupied his mind were the sin and the ramifications of sin that he had committed. Adultery, and maybe worse than adultery against Bathsheba, and then the murder of Uriah and the cover-up, He ruined relationships with his family. He ruined relationships within the nation. The problems invaded his work life, his home life, and they were significant and couldn't be contained. However, it was not just the mess that he made among those around him. If we believe his writings, David's deepest problem was not with those folks, but how he related to God. And this is strange because I don't think we think this way naturally. He tore up his family. He's publicly embarrassed. His work life is irreparably compromised. Everything he said he stood for, he seems to have destroyed and lies and public humiliation followed. And yet his biggest problem seemed to be between him and his Lord. I don't think we think that way. This period of life covered in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 was a time of sin and cover up. And it was contradictory to the way that David had typically lived his life. Typically, David was in trouble all the time and he would wait, always on the edge of trouble, not presuming anything, and then God would deliver him. Something miraculous would happen. And and right at the edge of trouble, while David was trusting the Lord, the Lord would sweep in and rescue him. And God would be generous to David, and David would recognize that generosity and praise God more for it. And this pattern built faith in his life. Time and time again, David waited for God to deliver, and God's deliverance taught David that he could rely on God more. And, and the relationship deepened that way. But in this case, with Bathsheba and Uriah, David had grabbed, for what he shouldn't have, and then killed to maintain it. There was no more satisfaction with God. There was no more trust for what was needed. There was no more waiting on the Lord. Trust, care, love, obedience, blessing. It was all gone that day. He snatched what he wanted. He went totally against the way he normally lived and how he and God operated together. Moreover, the context of God made this even worse. The Lord had established a relationship of goodness, of safety, of blessing. God had been protecting David for decades and bringing him to the throne. It was a slow process. I mean, it took a long time and it was full of danger, but God was always close to comfort him. And David had known close friendships in his life, but God was tangibly closer, if you read his writings. Tangibly closer. And now David had betrayed that relationship, and Nathan had said it in 2 Samuel 12. It was in the midst of God's generosity to him that David decided to take things for himself. So that sin and separation from God was the low point, and David was happy when he recovered from that low point. Forgiveness for him was away from that low point. It was was God's restoration to who they used to be together. And so it brings him happiness and joy to say, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I'm going to bet that we would be hard-pressed to think back on our relationship with God and write two sentences like that. I just don't think it's the way we think. I don't think it's the way we feel. I think we understand it, but I don't think we feel it like David's feeling it here. David has an experience with God, and with God's forgiveness, that is incredibly tangible to him. And before we go on, maybe it's, we need to, think about what it means to feel something deeply. Feelings need to be based on truth or else feelings are unhelpful. Okay? Therefore, this is not just a call to feel happier about things. Feelings need to be tied to truth. There needs to be a reason which you believe and that reason will generate better feelings. So so subjective feelings should be tied to objective truth, right? And and any cheerleader knows this, right? A cheerleader knows this. She spends all her time and effort trying to generate a positive attitude, a great vibe, excitement in the, in the crowd, but you know what would really generate some positive vibe and excitement around here? How about some more points on the board? Points would help, wouldn't it? And And when you put points on the board, there's a concrete reason to get happy. Nothing's more pathetic than a cheerleader trying to generate enthusiasm when the team is being crushed, right? I mean, that's an uphill battle that nobody can win. She's trying to generate energy with no raw material. David thinks there are concrete reasons to be happy. And if if you really think about this like David did, you you have to boil this down to a problem. You might use three words that David used in verses 1 and 2 to describe the situation. The problem is transgression, sin, and iniquity. And these are biblical terms that are somewhat interchangeable. They are different perspectives on the same problem. And and yet it's interesting how David uses these terms. I, I think it's because he's been really considering what happened. Right? I typically... When I think about sin, I just call it sin. But I think David's been mulling this thing around in his mind that he's looking at it from several different perspectives. And and he's considered what happened. He could have just said sin, but he thought about it and thought of three different aspects to this problem. And and again, he's far from us in this way. We want distraction, not introspection. He's been thinking about this. We'd rather be distracted from this. The idea of thinking about who we are from God in front of God is kind of a weird concept. It's strange. And yet David considered this situation as he looks back on the time, and he said that he previously had a problem that manifested itself in three different ways. And in the first of these, David said, I have transgression, and blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means that David went against the will of God. And and it's obvious from what we know about God's holiness that David... David's behavior was unacceptable. Transgression seems like it's focused on the law, like you transgress the law. But that's not really the case. That's not really the case. Transgression is like a rebellion. It's a rebellion against God. Listen to how James talks about it in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles on one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now, what's James' point? His point is, if you committed a murder, you didn't just violate the statute against murder, you broke the whole law. You've offended the law because you broke into relationship between between you and the one who gave the law. Now, we don't understand this in our legal system, right? If you murder, you you broke a law, you have to pay for that law, you're on trial for that law, it's that law that's in focus. Nobody would say you broke all the law, laws of Georgia. And so we don't have it in our legal system. You're not breaking the whole penal code. But parents get this, and they get this when they're working with their kids, even if the kids don't get it that well right? So a parent's going to give an instruction or make a household rule. The child will break the rule thinking it wasn't that great of a rule anyways, right? I mean, come on, a little arbitrary with that, aren't you, mom and dad? And so kids are going to break the rule thinking that they broke a rule. They just broke a rule, right? And, and then mom and dad come at them with like some serious energy, right? I mean, they're really wound up about this rule for some reason. For the kids, from the kid's perspective. And, and how could one little disobedience create so much turmoil in a parent? They don't understand that they've disturbed the relationship. They don't understand that. They don't, they don't have the parent's blessing. They don't have the parent's smile. It's because restoration needs to take place between the people. And the problem is not just the breaking of the law, it's the breaking of the relationship between the lawgiver and the one who should have been obedient. And so when a parent comes to them in a frustrated manner, they look at them like they're a crazy person. You're wound pretty tightly about some little curfew issue, aren't you? Time is just kind of a construct, isn't it? And why, why is it that important? David and James are both saying the same thing. The major problem is the broken relationship. They cannot redo the decision. They cannot reverse the wrong. But they can and ought to repair the relationship. And by using the term transgression, David is saying that God demanded and expected certain things from me. I rebelled against him and his rules, and I did what I wanted. I took what I wanted. I covered up what I wanted. And there was a point where I didn't have his smile. I didn't have his blessing. I didn't have his relationship. And and that was then, and now my transgressions have have been wiped away and forgiven. And now I'm happy because those transgressions don't mark the relationship anymore. Again, I don't think we think like this today. Our sin may be ugly and might be personally disappointing. It might be embarrassing. However, we don't think of it as breaking our relationship with God too frequently. And we're like a kid that doesn't understand what he's done in the damage of the relationship. Isn't God sometimes seems to be wound a little tight over these sins? And we get over them and wonder why the relationship isn't what it was. The second thing that David made said that made him happy was the fact that his sin was covered. And uh, you might have heard that sin means to miss the mark. It means that you and I were supposed to be righteous and do righteousness. We were supposed to, uh, that's what we're built for. We're put in a position to do that. You are in a place, wherever you are, in which you are supposed to be characterized by righteousness in in that relationship, in that position. And yet, we don't. And we sin. And we fail and miss the mark for what we're supposed to be. And and so when you talk about your your faithfulness to God in those terms, you're talking missing the market is ethical, it's sinful. And so the answer for sin is really you need your sins covered. And David had this sense of failure and shame that made him want to cover up. The sin was personal, it was national, it was international, it was embarrassing. It tore up relationships and he wanted to have it hidden. It needed to be covered. Now you recognize that feeling, I hope. You recognize, I mean, it's one of the first lessons of Scripture, is it not? Adam and Eve disobey God, and and they want to cover their sins. They make leaf aprons and go hide in the bushes. And and everybody knows what it means to feel guilty. The problem is, when we cover sin, it's wrong. In fact, we call it a cover-up. It's wrong. And if you, you don't know whether a cover-up is right or wrong, you could ask Richard Nixon, or you could ask... David, either one. David David says the covering of the adultery is, is, was the whole issue. The sin was the adultery, but what was the death of Uriah? That was part of the cover-up, and the cover-up went on from there. Listen to the last phrase in Lamentations 4.22. I'll read the verse, but listen to the last phrase especially. It says, The punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer. But he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Eden. He will expose your sins. And that's what happened to David. See, where we cover up our sin, God uncovers and exposes. That's how he works. God is against the cover-up. And this is a problem, because we sin, we feel guilty, and yet we can't cover our guilt. And and in the Adam and Eve story, something interesting happened at verse 21, Genesis 3, 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin from Adam and his wife and clothed them. At first, God comes in and he uncovers them. By asking hard questions, he brings them out of the bushes and makes them feel the guilt that they were trying to hide from with these questions. But yet in verse 21, he doesn't leave them wearing these leaf apron things. Their coverings were not what he wanted for them, and he gave them what he wanted to wear. So, in verse 21, God covers them. At first, he uncovers them, and then he covers them. And Psalm 85, 2 declares, you forgive the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, O Lord. Well, we're talking about the word covering, but what we mean is forgiveness, don't we? Covering is a graphic way to talk about the experience of forgiveness, and theologically, it's the idea of atonement. And, and God's point is that if we cover our sins, He's going to uncover them. But if we uncover our sins, He will cover them. That's ironic, isn't it? Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. This is ironic. God uncovers what we cover, but what we expose, he covers. And no wonder it made David happy to finally get his sins covered by God. And all the problems he had covering his own sins, it was failure. But when God covered his his sins, there was joy, there was happiness. Now he has a clean slate before God. And the third aspect that makes David happy is in verse 2. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In- imputing iniquity has to do with David's liability for what he's done. And instead of receiving the punishment, the deserve for the deserved actions, David doesn't get that. The Lord didn't hold it against him or put it on some kind of ledger for him. He doesn't owe anything. And there's no objective debt. And God isn't holding over him to repay anything. He's been freed from the deficit that he put himself in. And there is no further obligation here. I don't know if you've ever been relieved of that kind of debt. But it's a good feeling to not have debt. Especially if you've been burdened by it. It's an incredible weight that's been removed. And and iniquity... Iniquity is really right... And the guilt that goes with it is really right in David's situation. I mean, he, he did something, right? And guilt is funny. Guilt is a funny thing because it's both objective and subjective as well, right? And, and David was, in fact, objectively guilty. He did something. It wasn't just that he felt bad. He felt bad because he did something. Now, the feeling bad is subjective. For example, when the the judge tells you you're guilty, he's not talking about your feelings. You feel guilty. He's talking about the way you stand before him as a guilty person. But on the other hand, guilt is a feeling that comes with feeling guilty. I mean, when you're guilty, you feel guilty. Hopefully, you ought to. That's the job of the conscience, right? We ought to feel guilty when we do wrong. That's what consciences are supposed to do. And it tells us we're guilty by producing guilt within us. In that sense, again the subjective feeling is tied to an objective truth. And it's only one who knows their massive debt has been canceled that will celebrate when it's been removed. David was happy that God didn't charge his iniquity to him. He knows now that he has a clean record and therefore a clean conscience. How blessed, how happy, how joyful is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, I'm happy. The transgression is forgiven. The sin is covered. The iniquity has not been put on my account. I am clean, and I feel great. Look at verses 3 and 4, and you'll get an idea why David feels great. David remembers... What he'd learned from this very difficult year of sin and shame and consequences of his actions, and he says, "When I keep, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away, as with the fever heat of summer." Selah. first thing that seems to happen here is that David felt physically bad. Now, I don't know if we can know exactly what David is describing, and I would remind you this is poetry, so he might be speaking in metaphors. However, even if this is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something, right? There's a, there's a realness behind the metaphor, and, and David describes a slow weakening draining of strength a groaning it affected him i don't know like a flu or a virus that caused his strength to completely wait run down and and this is a spiritual sickness that creates a physical situation and There are a couple ways in which these things are manifested, and, and I don't think we can get quite behind what's going on here. But think about this, there is definitely a correlation between a person's mental and emotional state and their physical health. That's absolutely true. You can make yourself sick by the way you mentally process things, right? Everyone knows you can cause ulcers in yourself by the way you handle problems. Everybody knows you can have increased blood pressure by the way you handle problems right? Uh, there, There are many studies about prayer and placebos that emphasize that we are holistic beings. Your mind and emotion don't go through one thing and your body through a different thing. We are tied together. And your mind can affect your body and your body can affect your mind. And all of that can affect your emotions. And so perhaps what David is saying, I was so tied up with my guilt and my anxiety and my worry that my body ached and I felt weak all the time. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. However, in the next verse, David is insinuating that something else may be going on as well. Because scripture says sometimes there's a physical consequence for a spiritual sin. And we have to be very careful with this, but let me show you something that you probably read many times in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's often the passage is read at the taking of the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 30, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and a woman too, I would say, It must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So, this passage says that uh, there were some Christians in the city of Corinth who were sick, and some had even died. Sleep is a metaphor for death, a euphemism for death, in verse 30. Well, why has this happened? Well, this was a physical consequence of sin. They were sitting with brothers and sisters around a table, the Lord's table, and and they wanted to do that in light of unity. But what happened is they weren't unified. And so pretending to get along... Uh, yet maintaining a bad relationship among them. Some Corinthians wanted to pretend there's nothing wrong between them and knew that there was something that needed to be addressed. And, and you might think, uh, and death and sickness was a part of this. And, and you might think that God doesn't do that sort of thing. He doesn't work that way. And he won't bring illness and he won't bring death to people just because of sin. Well, if you think that way, the onus of proof is on you because that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 11 says. And moreover, verse 4 in our passage in Psalm 32 says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. David's saying that about God. God's hand is heavy on him. So David is saying it's God making him feel this way. Now, I I just want to caution you. You can't look at every sick person and, and try to find the sin that they're into, right? That just because somebody gets sick doesn't mean they're sinful all the time. I mean, this is emphasized in John 9. Not everybody who's sick has sin. So don't misquote me or misunderstand the principle. We can never tell why God allows sin and death at all. Or excuse me, sickness and death. But at times, it's what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying. At times, it is what Psalm 32, 4 says. And David, you can disagree with what you think about that now, but I think you have to say that David thought, according to verse 4, that God was bringing this to him. By the way, if you can't bring yourself to say that God would not affect a person's health or life because of sin, it's usually because you think your life and health are more important to you and more important to God than your holiness. But you're wrong in that. Your holiness is much more important to God Than your health. And so note when this happened to David. David said, it's when I kept silent about my sin. And this just shows David was slow to repent. This is part of David's cover-up. This bad health happened when David wouldn't repent. Keeping silent about sin is not a good thing. But if you think about it, who was David going to tell? I mean, those who were close to him already knew about it. And it was getting very, very public. And within a year, everybody knew about it. And so who is David going to tell when it says, I kept silent about my sin? This has to do with not David telling other people. It has to do with David telling God. It has to do with David's confession. And and this is part of the act of repentance, really, is confession. And his sin had kept him from God. Also, his lack of repentance had kept him from God. And he didn't tell God about his sin. Now, neither we nor David think that God needs to be informed about anything. I mean, part of of the point of being God is you know everything. And so David's not going to tell God anything God didn't know. But in this time, David is more interested in cover-up than confession. And it made it physically ill. David needs to admit to God what God already knows about David. God knows who David is and what he's done and what it means. David needs to come to that realization as well. And confession is really telling God, I agree with how you think about me, how you think about what's happened. I see that, and I agree. So uh, that's what's been going. You can see why David is so happy that he's out of that period of life, that he's come out of that, and now he can look back on that and say, I'm blessed. I'm happy. I'm joyful. And and you get this. In verse 5, there's resolution, and you get what changed David from a sick, guilty man to somebody as happy. Listen to David talk about how he went through the experience with God. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, I know this is poetry, but look how comprehensive David is at this point. He acknowledged sin, he did not hide iniquity, and he confessed his transgressions. He's making similar statements in three different ways for emphasis to show the completeness of this. And just as he thought about it in terms of his guilt in a very pondering way that defined things in small pieces, he comes and looks at his repentance in the same way. He's thoughtful about it. He sinned in how he treated Bathsheba and he went into cover-up with the murder of Uriah and he went into deeper cover-up and became ill and he confessed in the end to the cover-up. And clearly verse 5 describes the end of the cover-up phase before God. David is saying by admitting and confessing our sins, we find God who forgives. Remember, God knows who we are. He knows what we think. He knows what we've done. He knows our attitudes, our motives, our goals, our our quiet lusts. He doesn't need to be informed. What he needs, what he wants is for us to come to agreement that that's who we are. And it's coming out dirty before God that allows him to forgive us, that encourages him to forgive us. And so confession is admitting to God what he already knows about us. In verses 1 and 2, the action was God's. The transgression had to be forgiven by God. The sin was covered, but who covered it? It had to be God. The iniquity was not imputed. Who didn't impute it? Well, it had to be God. And yet in verse 5, David uses the same three nouns, transgressions, sins, and iniquities. And now who's active in verse 5? It's David. David acknowledges he has sinned. David did not hide his iniquity. David will confess his transgressions. And we have to be active in confession because God is active in forgiveness. The problem is when we try to forgive ourselves, that never works. It's just cover up. There's no no place in the Bible where somebody is encouraged to forgive themselves. They're, they're, They're encouraged to come before God, uncover themselves, and God will forgive them. We're active in confession. God's active in forgiveness. What we uncover in confession, God will cover in forgiveness. We confess sins, God forgives sins. We confess iniquity, God forgives iniquities. We confess transgressions, God forgives transgressions. And so this shows the, the threefold comprehensive nature of confession and forgiveness. But we have to admit that we are traitors, fallen, and guilty. We're dirty. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And this this confession is an appeal for forgiveness to the one and only God who can grant it. Note God's response at the end of verse 5, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's why David calls himself blessed. Confession and forgiveness are the tools God uses in a relationship. They bring the relationship back together. And being together with God is what made David happy again. Transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. Iniquity is gone. If we never feel the weight of sin, if we never bear the loss of relationship, we won't enjoy the forgiveness. For example, if you don't feel sick, you won't appreciate medicine. If we don't think we're in debt, we won't appreciate debt relief. If you don't think a relationship's broken, you're not going to appreciate the restoration. That's the difference. David saw the Lord's forgiveness as life-saving, and we don't normally think of it that way. If your sin is big, grace is great, and happiness is sweet. So what keeps us from that? What keeps us from going and confessing everything immediately, right off, and deeply Well, I think, number one, it's pride. Pride wants us to see ourselves in the best light possible, not in the truth. Pride will let you compare yourself to others to make you look good. Pride will let you explain away your sin by appealing to the circumstances. Pride lets me downgrade my offenses. Pride appeals to my intent, not with whatever happens. You know, when when I hurt you, I let myself off the hook because I didn't really mean to. But you hurt me, I don't care what you meant. You hurt me. So I'll judge me on my best intentions and you on your worst actions. That's what pride does. Pride will do anything before letting us humble ourselves before God. If pride had his way, there would be no harm, no foul, no need for repentance, no debt for forgiveness, no happiness from grace either. Pride works against us. Secondly, pride gets help from some modern philosophies. Our culture thinks guilt is the problem, not the sin that produces guilt, right? So, so nobody wants you to feel guilty, so don't feel guilty. Just don't. Let yourself off, right? So we're, not, we're told not to feel guilty because guilt is detrimental. But we're not told well, what to do with the sin that produces the guilt. We're, in tr- we're instructed to like maybe redefine it so it doesn't feel wrong. It won't produce guilt, which that's wrong. So what you get is behaviors that are sinful in Scripture are redefined as natural or average or common or normal. or You're just a normal person, right? And if it's found to be normal and widespread, it can't be wrong. So why are you feeling guilty? And therefore, the subjective feeling of guilt is challenged by redefining the sinful behavior that caused it, and the objective reasons for feeling guilty aren't addressed. And and guilt is addressed, but not the sin that causes guilt. And biblically speaking, just because it's natural, just because it's normal, just because it's average, doesn't make it right. The Bible is clear. Normal, average, is still wrong after the fall. It's sinful. Sin is commonly practiced in many ways, but that doesn't reduce the fact that it's evil. Sin is average, and everybody does it. In fact, it's quite popular, if you haven't noticed. And so it's still sin. Guilt is good because it helps us run to Christ for help. There's also some bad Christian thinking in this as well. And I know I have practiced this, and probably you'll recognize some of it. We misappropriate and misapply some things we know about God in order to let ourselves off the hook. I mean, you know God is loving. He's very loving. He loves me in spite of my sin. He's good. He'll be good to me in spite of my sin. He's forgiving also. Uh, it's almost like I have grace before I ask, to be honest. He's, ne- he's never the same. He never, uh, excuse me, he, never, he never changes. He's always the same. His goodness, his kindness, and forgiveness is always there. Therefore, I can very quickly jump from a sinful situation to an assurance that God's all right with me. And that move from sin to grace is so quick and so efficient the same, that the exchange was painless and ultimately meaningless. I barely had time to quote John 1, 1 John 1, nine, in a 15-second prayer when I found myself comforted and moving forward. In fact, as natural Pharisees, we assume grace and God's good pleasure all the time without guilt or repentance involved in it at all. So functionally, God's okay with me, whatever I do, because he is gracious. That can't be right. And when we come to Psalm chapter 32, that's why it reads strange to us. Is David really going to wallow in all that guilt? He's using a lot of strong, self-deprecating language here. When he ought to just quote 1 John 1, 1.9 and move on, God is faithful and righteous, isn't he? However, our attitude does not describe the relationship with God in Scripture. Romans 6 and 7 and 8 describes forgiveness in ways that we go on to fight sin and continue to hate it as we grow in righteousness, as we grow in holiness. Scripture shows the Christian working to fight against indwelling sin based on Christ's forgiveness. It's called putting our flesh to death. It's called giving life to righteousness. This is visceral work. It's not an assumption of God's grace. Now, I want to end by reemphasizing how important it is to feel forgiven. If you don't feel forgiven, you'll never get happy about what Jesus did. That feeling has got to be based on the truth that God has actually forgiven you. It can't be based on an assumption of God's grace. That truth has to get down. The truth of it has to get down into our desires, into our bones, into our feelings. It has to reach our inner person. And 2 and Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, this is compelling. When it gets that deep, it compels you, it moves you in a direction. 1 John 4.19 says it produces something within us. These objective facts, when they get roots down in us, they actually change things, and they make us subjectively happy for a reason. And Lord willing, next time we look at this psalm, David is going to teach us. He's going to change to a teacher that tells us that that forgiveness is a great motivator. Now, just in a practical sense, the best way I know, it's not the only way probably, uh, it's, it's not the way at all, but it, the, my experience, the best way to consider the objective truth of this matter is to consider what Christ has accomplished, what Jesus has done, what actually happened for you on the cross. And, and if you look at the cross, if you look at what Christ is, what you see is the horrible quality of sin that calls for death. It shows the incredible consequences of our participation in that sin. It demonstrates the incredible love of the Father. And it emphasizes the great cost of grace in which God walks towards us. He moves towards us in our sinfulness. We can't move towards Him in our chains of sin, but He moves towards us with grace. And to the extent you not only know that, but actually feel that deeply, Christ will make you happy. I know he will. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. I just want to read this as a closing thought. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. It's critical that we know and feel the forgiveness of Christ so that we, like the Ephesians, may be filled with the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, even as I hear these things coming out of my mouth, I know that they do not describe me well. I know there are sins that I have committed and asked forgiveness for time and time and time again. And I know there's a repentance that is not what it should be. That is not a real forsaking of sin, but a, a putting off and a covering up. Lord, I pray that as we look at the cross, we see Christ, that we feel the import of what he's done that he becomes heavier and more significant and more glorious to us, even as he has accomplished things at his weakest on our behalf. We pray that you will make this indelible on in our hearts and that it would change who we are and that you would make us happy once again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.